For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you that we can gather together now. Lord, we know that this gathering is a grace gift from you. Father, we know that this is one of your means of grace in our lives and that you work in a very unique way in our lives through this, through when your church gathers. And Lord, so to that end, we pray with the Apostle Paul that even today that you might strengthen us with power through your Spirit in our inner beings so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us internally, each and every believer in this room, so that we would be more and more like Jesus. Father, we pray that being rooted and grounded in love, we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and the height and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And we pray that, Lord, so that we might be filled with the fullness of you. We pray that so that we might grow into maturity. Father, we pray that you would grow us as the people that you've called us out to be. Lord, would you take this little church and use us for your glory here in McKinney and beyond. Father, would you help us to mature into what it is that you want us to be for your glory and for the good of all of those who call this church home. And Father, we pray that we would be a church that is bold in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be a church who consistently proclaims the historic teachings of the gospel. We pray that we would be a church that prays, oh, Father, help us. Father, we do thank you that as we think about what you've called us here to do, we thank you that we do not labor here in McKinney alone. Father, we thank you for other churches preaching the gospel. Lord, we think of the Parkway Church. We're so thankful for Jeff Ashley and the other elders there. Lord, we pray for your strength for them. We pray for endurance for them. We pray for more and more usefulness for that ministry, that they would be used of you to see the gospel continue to spread throughout our city and beyond. Father, we thank you for the joy of gospel partnerships. To that end, we pray for Embrace. We pray for Denise Kendrick. Father, we pray that you would continue to use this ministry. Father, help them, Lord, to stay firm 
on their gospel-centeredness. Father, as they will no doubt face pressure to give in in certain areas, Lord, help them to stand firm. And Father, I just pray that you would continue to use this ministry for your glory. We do now pray for the rest of our time together. Lord, we pray that you would help me to get out of your way, that you would speak your word to us for the good of your saints, Father, so that you might build us up for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, you may recall that we covered what I think is just truly a glorious prayer of the Apostle Paul, where Paul taught us to pray that God would empower us to be more like Jesus. Paul taught us to pray that we would be strengthened, that God would strengthen us through His Holy Spirit so that we would be able to comprehend the amazing love Christ has for His people so that we would grow up into maturity. And, and as, we, as we studied that prayer, we saw that he, he gave several grounds for this prayer, several things that are for the purpose of engendering confidence in prayer. You might recall that he, he started his first ground was the whole of chapters 1 through 3. In other words, he wanted us to think on all that he'd already said in chapters 1 through 3 to, to give us confidence to pray. He wanted us to think about who God is and what he's already done. We can have confidence to pray, can't we, because God has chosen us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Wow. That is very far from being some distant deity who doesn't really care about people. No, Paul's already told us before the foundation of the world, if you're in Christ, God said, you are mine and you will be mine. We were dead spiritually, enslaved to the world, the devil, and our own flesh. We were as far away as we could possibly be, and God brought us near by the blood of His own Son. What's more, he grounded this prayer. He wanted to build our confidence by reminding us that God is Father. And this is huge, right? We are adopted children of God, and God went to such great lengths to make this true. Paul also told us God is rich in glory. We do not pray to a God who is unable to come to our aid. We don't pray to a God who is poor and needy, needs our help. We pray to our loving Heavenly Father who is rich in glory, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is sovereign. There's nothing He cannot do. There is no resource He does not have. Which led to the last thing Paul told us after the prayer that should lead us to want to race to the prayer closet. And it's this. He said, our God is able. He is able to accomplish far more than we could ever ask or imagine. And again, all of these things are here to engender confidence in prayer. They, they, they should lead us to want to pray more. And so the question I want us to wrestle with this morning is, 
given that we know all of this is true, why do we not pray more? Why is the most common testimony you hear about prayer, ranging from a new believer to the most mature saints, why does it seem the most common testimony is, I wish I prayed more? Now, this morning, we're going to do, we're going to come at this a little bit different. The sermon text on paper is the same as last week, but this is not an expositional sermon. That happened last week, and if you miss it, missed it, I commend it to you because this is really part two of that. Here I want to lean in on application, specifically coming at it from the angle that if this is all true, if these grounds for prayer are true, which we know they are, why do we still struggle with prayer? And I, and I have three points that I want us to consider this morning. They are, first, we struggle because we feel distant from God. Number one, we struggle because we feel distant from God. Number two, we struggle in prayer because of pride. And number three, we struggle in prayer because we are not absolutely convinced that our prayers really matter. And having talked to countless people about prayer and knowing my own heart, I know that we all struggle with each of these three things to varying degrees at various times in our life. And what I want us to see as we go through this is that Paul actually pushes against each one of these. So, start with the first one. Paul speaks of God as Father, right? The first one is we feel distant from God. Paul pushes against that by speaking of God as Father. He, he, he's showing us God as our heavenly Father who's gone to such great lengths to make us adopted children. And so, for this, I just want to start with a picture. And obviously, analogies between our heavenly Father and any earthly father are going to ultimately break down because there are no perfect earthly fathers. But just try this on for size. Imagine a situation where you have a preteen or teenage child with a loving earthly father. And for this analogy, this dad is a great dad, okay? He loves well. He's always there. He's done absolutely nothing to push this child away. And yet, as is often the case, this child hits a certain age and begins to pull away a bit from dad. He or she doesn't want to spend as much time with him as maybe just a few years ago, as this child now has other interests. Not to mention this child might be dabbling in some things that he knows dad might not be okay with. And so, she pulls back a little bit more. Little wonder that one night when something difficult happens, where she would normally go to her dad, she voices in the quiet of her own bedroom, dad just feels distant. Dad doesn't care. I can't take this to dad. And see, I think this is all of us from time to time to varying degrees with our perfect, loving, heavenly Father who went to such great lengths to make us sons and daughters. We pull back, and then we wonder why God seems so distant. We fail to embrace the reality that we are children of God. And I trust 
we could probably list a hundred reasons that would lead us to this point. So we obviously can't hit all of them, but I want to consider a few because this is really important. Sometimes we feel distant from God because, quite frankly, we've pulled back. Sometimes we feel distant from God because we've not been spending time with Him. You might say it like this, prayerlessness begets prayerlessness. Prayerlessness leads to more prayerlessness. For someone who prays on a regular basis, if, if, if they miss a, a day of prayer, boy, they really feel it, right? That intimacy with God that they're so used to, it's not there and something's missing. It bothers them, usually leading them back to prayer. Consider a married couple with a, with a healthy marriage where they connect on a daily basis. And by connecting, I'm not talking about just sort of business partnership. Did you get the kids? Did you do the laundry? I'm talking about they really sit down. They really talk. They really connect on a daily basis. And now, now consider for that couple that a day, or heaven forbid, two go by where they don't connect at all. Maybe one was traveling or the schedule just got so busy, it's like two ships passing in the night. But because of their norm of experiencing that relationship, it would bother them, right? One of them, both of them would say, hey, we need to talk. We need to connect. I, I miss you. On the other hand, oftentimes couples fall into what you might consider more of a business partnership where there's very little actual connecting. The conversations are, did you get the kids? Can you do the laundry? Who's picking up the groceries? Very little connecting. And when that happens, when that becomes the routine, think about it, when our lack of connecting becomes the norm, substantive conversations become more difficult, don't they? Right? The same is true of prayer. If we go several days without praying, and again, I'm not talking about whiplash prayers, thanks for the food sort of thing. I'm talking about getting alone with God, the kind of prayers that we see Jesus teach in Matthew 6. And if we go several days without praying like this, we get more and more comfortable without prayer until finally we try to pray and it feels uncomfortable. We feel distant. Perhaps we wonder, what am I doing down on my knees? Why am I talking to couch cushions? Quite frankly, we probably struggle with feeling a little bit unworthy, which leads to the next reason we struggle with this feeling distant from our Heavenly Father, and that's when there's sin in the camp. Now, this can be unconfessed sin in the camp, or perhaps maybe we're dealing with a besetting sin, even though we've confessed it, maybe our conscience is particularly bothered, and we experience this feeling of, of, of distance. Now, sometimes there's even a confession of a particular sin, but we've not really resolved to repent of it, thus leading to this feeling of, of distance. And all of this makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you're in a, a fight with your spouse, and maybe you've said some things that you shouldn't have, but you know what? So did she, and doggone it, you're still angry, and you're not giving her an ounce of grace. It's kind of hard to get down on your knees and say, Lord, I need the grace for today, isn't it? Or perhaps we hit a porn site and are riddled with guilt. We feel shame, right? Perhaps we feel like we've crossed a line and He couldn't possibly take us back. Or, or worse yet, 
We fall into some misguided theology, and we think, I've crossed a threshold, and since I'm going to have to work my way out here in that works righteousness, since I'm going to have to work my way out anyway, I may as well dabble here for a little while because I'm already here. And so what do we do? We, we go into hiding. We feel distant. We don't pray. And of course, there's many other reasons that we could go into if we had time of why we might feel distant from God. Sometimes we might feel distant from God because, quite frankly, we're angry with God. You know, things haven't gone our way. Things haven't gone the way that we expected them. And we don't think God's been very good to us. Other times, we can honestly just be walking through a dry time spiritually. You, you, you hear saints of old, if you read old biography, talking about this as far back as you can find books. Uh, there, there, there's no unconfessed sin in the camp. You, you've tried to spend time with God, but He just feels distant in that season. And all of these and many others are real hindrances that cause us to feel distant from our Heavenly Father. And again, I trust that we've all struggled with at least some of these at various times. So what's the remedy? How do we move forward? Well, I can tell you very clearly, very boldly, that the remedy is not for you to work your way back to where you feel like you are worthy to engage with God. That's not the remedy. That's false teaching. That's works righteousness. The remedy is the gospel. The remedy is the gospel. See, we completely miss the boat if we allow our feelings to be a final standard as to whether or not we can come before God. And this is both theological and practical, isn't it? Consider when sin is the reason we feel distant from God. And tie that together with what I said earlier, that prayerlessness begets more prayerlessness. And so, I feel ashamed and then I don't pray, and then I feel more ashamed now that I've not prayed, and thus I don't feel that I can come to God in prayer. I mean, don't we have a major problem when we compare such thinking to what the Bible teaches us? I mean, consider Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. You don't have to turn there, but you can write it down. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, biblical writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us then draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Church, our acceptability before God. It's not our feelings. It's not that I feel like I've had a good week. It's not even our actions. Our acceptability before God is the blood of Christ. It's, it's through the cross. It was, it was Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead where those who believe were moved from being enemies with God to adopted children. And let me just say, I know there's some sitting here right now who haven't made that crossover, and I would plead with you to look to Christ. You might currently be outside of Christ, and to really enjoy what I'm talking about, being able to call God Father, being able to come to Him 
You must repent of your sin, believe in Jesus, and follow Him. For believers, the gospel tells us that we are now adopted children of God with a loving Heavenly Father who knows who we are, He knows we're dust, He knows how broken we are, and He wants us to come and commune with Him and be reminded of the grace He continually holds out to us. See, for the Christian, every day is lived in light of the gospel, and every day we approach God not because of our own righteousness, but because we have Jesus, our great high priest who went before us. Now, it doesn't mean our lives don't matter. They absolutely do. All who are truly children of God live changed lives. That's just true. We see that in the Bible. But, but even our changed lives are far from perfect lives, and every day we're in deeper need of the gospel than we were the day before. And so, when we fall on our face, when we fall into sin, we mustn't hide from God. We come to Him and confess our need for help once again. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Praise God. 1 John 2, 1 through 2, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if, when, anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins. When we sin, when we don't feel worthy to come to God, we look to the cross, we focus on Christ. I love the line in the song before the throne of God above that says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me, to look on Christ and call me adopted, to look on Christ and call me beloved. And see, even when we're just feeling some unexplained distance from God, and sin, at least as far as we can tell, isn't the issue, I would argue that the gospel is still the remedy. It's vital that we're daily reminding ourselves that those of us who are in Christ are beloved of God. He went to such great lengths to redeem us, and we can rejoice in knowing He loves me. He wants me to come into His presence, even if I'm not feeling it in the moment. Listen, if you hear yourself saying that you're distant from God, if you hear yourself saying you're not worthy to come to Him in prayer, please recognize if you're in Christ, that is not coming from God. That is the evil one talking or perhaps your own bruised conscience. And it's a great opportunity not to listen to the devil or even to yourself, but to preach the gospel to yourself and to come back into sweet communion and prayer with your loving, caring Heavenly Father. And there's so much more we could talk about on this first point, but I need to get to the second point. As we think about some of the reasons we struggle in prayer, the next one I want to think about is pride. This is probably number one on the list. And the ways in which Paul has already been going after this one in chapters one through three are too many to enumerate. But think about it. Because of pride, 
because of an illusion of self-sufficiency, we don't really think, really being the operative word, we don't really think that we need to pray. Because of our pride, we don't always feel our need for prayer, right? We might say things, at least in our head, like, man, I need to pray, but I'm too busy, right? I'm running late. I I, got to go. I'll maybe pray later. I mean, the fact that such a thought would even incur to us, coupled with the lack of time we actually log in prayer, demonstrates pride or an illusion of self-sufficiency. I mean, we need to be clear. We need to just call it what it is. Saying, I'm too busy to pray. I don't have time for prayer today is about as prideful of a statement as we could possibly make. I mean, we're not too busy to breathe, right? On occasion, I get too busy to eat. I'll forget to eat a meal, but I don't forget to, right? We're not not too busy to eat. Apostle Paul has been telling us God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He depends on no one. We, on the other hand, aren't even sovereign over our own selves, right? We're not powerful. We're weak. We were the ones who were in slavery. We're far more dependent than we would ever care to admit. And so, when we say, I'm too busy to go where true help can actually be found, or I don't have time to pray, we're simply rejecting in that moment what the Bible teaches us about God and what the Bible teaches us about ourselves. And listen, I'm not throwing stones here. I'm, I'm your pastor, and I've made such statements, at least in my own head, on more than one occasion. But, but I'm also clear, spiritually speaking, saying we're too busy to pray would be like a guy on life-supporting dialysis saying, I'm too busy for treatment. I got a lot going on. I, I'm too busy. Right? I mean, we would, we would call that guy disillusioned, wouldn't we? If he knew he needed dialysis to stay alive, but he proclaims, I'll be just fine. I don't have time for that. But church, I think we do this with prayer. And part of the struggle is, even though theologically we know our very breath comes from God, we also know, don't we, that in the realm of God's common grace, even unbelievers can accomplish quite a lot without prayer. And, and, and since we've lived it, and since we've done it, we know, don't we, that we can too. I mean, let's be honest. You can get up tomorrow morning, get out of bed without prayer, without saying, Lord, help me for, for today. You can. I'm just telling you right now. You can go to work tomorrow morning accomplish a lot of things without saying, Lord, I need wisdom for today. I need your guidance. Lord, help me be on mission in my workplace. You can come home from work tomorrow and muscle your way through serving your family to one degree or another, partly depending on some of your own natural God-given inclinations. You can even, and this is particularly dangerous, you can even do spiritual things like serving here in the church, leading a small group, even preaching sermons 
without bathing these things in prayer. But knowing as we do that we're eternal beings, and as Christians, God has called us to do that which has eternal implications. Knowing as we do that we can't make anyone a Christian, knowing as we do that we can't force anyone to grow in their faith, knowing that we do that we can't cause ourselves to grow in our faith, and knowing as we do that Jesus tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing, we really are disillusioned when we just try to power through. And so here, we also need to think of a remedy, don't we? And I think here the remedy is a good, healthy dose of what Paul's been teaching us in Ephesians 1 through 3. We need a good, healthy reminder of who we are and who God is. We need regular reminders of our weakness, our inability, and God's sovereign control over all things. And this is one of the many reasons the Word of God is so important in our daily lives. I mean, again, just think about what Paul's been teaching us through chapters 1 through 3, who we were who God is, what He's done. And so, whether through the preached Word or through your own personal reading of the Word or as we gather in small groups or gather with other believers, fellowship of the Word, or better yet, through all of the above, we need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. You need to be reminded. We need to remind one another that God is sovereign and we are not so that our posture is one of humble neediness before God And I think the Bible's teaching on anxiety is particularly helpful here. Consider a text like 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 7, Peter says, Therefore, humble yourselves. He's going to say how in a minute, but first he says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So it's a command, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God trusting that He will exalt you. Now, then he goes on to say how. Humble yourselves by, here's how, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Humble yourself by prayer, right? Casting your anxieties on Him, trusting that He cares for you. Notice the link in God's Word between humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God and casting our anxieties on Him. See, most of our anxiety… Our, our lack of patience, even our anger when we're all wound up, most of that flows from pride, right? I, I, I know how I want to do something, and, and I know how it should get accomplished, and when it starts to not work that way, it's kind of slipping from my grasp. I'm grabbing tighter and tighter, and I'm all tied up inside, and that can lead, depending on your personality, to discouragement depression, anger, you know, all of these things. But, but the text is telling us that these things flow out of us trying to carry burdens we can't carry. Will my, will my boss love my presentation? You know, will, will I be deemed worthy of that raise that I really feel like my family needs? That, that lump that I'm feeling, is it, is it cancer? On the other hand, when we humble ourselves before God, prayerfully submit our plans to Him with open hands, trusting His sovereign plan, He can remove anxiety and the frustration and the anger that often flows from it. 
I mean, isn't that what Paul's teaching us in Philippians 4 when he commands us, be anxious for nothing, right? That's a command. Be anxious for nothing. Here's what instead, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. So, don't be anxious. Instead, pray, and then there's a promise. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, so notice we're commanded not to try to do it all on our own. We're, we're commanded not to be anxious and all worked up over things, but to come to God and pray, to, to give it to God, to submit these things to God, and to trust Him. Now, why, why do you think He commanded this? I mean, think about it. Prayer is humbling, isn't it? Right? Prayer is a humbling experience. Think about the postures of prayer that we see in the Scriptures. On my knees, sprawled out on my face. And, and what are we saying ultimately and finally in prayer? Aren't we saying this is humbling? I can't. The great I who think I can accomplish anything, and I'm saying I can't, but you can. I'm saying I'm weak, you're strong. I'm saying I recognize you don't need me, but I need you, right? We're asking someone stronger and greater than us to help us. And being clear on this, really embracing who I am, really embracing who God is, is the great antidote to pride and leads me to come to God asking for help every step of the way. And like the last one, you know we could just go on and on here, but we need to go to one more, one more, I think, barrier to prayer, and it's interesting to me when it comes to prayer that our understanding of the sovereignty of God actually cuts both ways. We, 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 we've just seen that it's part of the remedy for our struggle with prayer due to pride, but I also have to tell you a faulty understanding of God's sovereignty leads many, especially in theological camps like ours, to somehow come to the misguided notion that prayer doesn't really matter, which is the third, what I would say, hindrance to praying like Paul's teaching us. This is a theological struggle, and this theological struggle is compounded because prayer is hard work. And we're not going to work really hard at something if we don't really believe it's going to be effective, right? You're not going to work really hard at physical exercise if you don't think it's going to help you accomplish anything. We're not going to work really hard at prayer like the Bible teaches unless we believe it's effective. Added to that, let's just be honest here, you get zero credit for prayer, not from other people anyway, not if you're thinking in terms of Matthew 6, where Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites. We don't pray out on the street corner. Hey, Lord, I'm a spiritual guy. People are like, dude, he's a nut, or well, he's awesome. I can't think of too many that would say he's awesome. But for the Jews, they certainly had that. But he's saying, don't do that. Don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't pray to get noticed. Go into your room, close the door, do something nobody sees. 
Do it a lot. Labor in this. So think about it. It's hard work. You ain't going to get any pats on the back. So we must really believe that it's effective. We must be absolutely, positively convinced at the very core of our being that God works through prayer if we're actually going to put in the work here. And again, one chronic reason people struggle here is theological. It starts with what I would consider good theology and moves to unbiblical conclusions, unbiblical conclusions that the biblical writers never fall into. Think about it. Our biblical theology says God is sovereign over all things. Think about what Paul's been teaching us. If you're in Christ, it's because He chose you from before the foundation of the world. He's sovereign over that. In fact, if we did a whole Bible theology, you could say that God is sovereign over the weather. He's sovereign over animals. He's sovereign over the affairs of nations. He's sovereign over the hearts of world leaders. He is sovereign over those things that seem to us like random chance. Indeed, not a single hair on your head or a single grain of sand, not even a particle of dust falls outside of His sovereign control. And that is good and right and true. We must embrace that. The Bible teaches it. That said, we often take this biblically correct, good, glorious, God-centered theology and make it into something that runs contrary to the Bible, right? We take good biblical theology of God's sovereignty to an unbiblical conclusion and end up saying something like, well, if God knows everything, if He's ordained all things from before the foundation of the world, then I don't really need to pray because God's got it all worked out. Here's the problem with that, and you need to listen close. Nowhere, not one place in the Bible Do you ever see a conclusion like that? Not one place. In fact, what we see over and over again is highlighting of the sovereignty of God, exhortation to pray. I mean, think about Ephesians 1 through 3. It teaches us probably as much or more about the sovereignty of God than any other New Testament book. And there's two weighty biblical prayers right there. I mean, that's helpful. Or think about things like Moses. We see Moses pleading with God to relent of His judgment. And God does, showing God works through prayers. Sometimes I hear hear well-meaning, reformed preachers say things like, we don't move God in prayer. He moves us. Now, We know experientially that this can happen, right? As we pray, God changes our heart and all of that. We know that's true. But that statement just put out there is not consistent with the teaching of Scripture. What we see in Scripture, test this for yourself, is the consistent call to prayer with promises that God hears and answers prayer. And examples all over the place where we see that very thing. My point is this, and it's an important point. If we struggle 
with thinking that God's sovereignty removes even a hint of our responsibility to pray or negates the biblical teaching that God answers our prayers, we must be clear that we are drawing conclusions that Holy Scripture does not draw. And this is a real struggle for some with real passages of God's sovereignty and real logic that flow from that. And I get that. I mean, it's easy to see how one could ask, how can God be totally sovereign all, over all things, all the way down to the casting of a lot? This is Proverbs 16.33, right? It teaches us that throw the lot, think in terms in our day of dice. And God knows exactly what numbers will turn up. The Bible teaches us that. So how can that be true? And our prayers mean anything, much less affect things. And look, I can't tell you I understand exactly how God works this out because I don't have the mind of God. I, I can't completely tell you how the Trinity works either. But as we've been going through Ephesians 1 through 3, we've seen the Trinity all over these pages. What I can tell you is similar to the Trinity. If I reject the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, I'm rejecting the God of the Bible. Very similar to reject God's sovereignty or His working through prayer is to reject what we find in God's Word. So, consider one way forward, and I pointed this out when we covered Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 1, we see that God has chosen His children from before the foundation of the world. So, God was at work ordaining our very salvation before time. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us that He saved us then by grace through faith. And we often leave off verse 10. Verse 10 says, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. What did He prepare beforehand? It was the good works. That's the only thing that can mean here, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And listen, if our prayers then are some of the good works God created us to walk in even before the foundation of the world, while still mind-boggling, we can see how God actually works through our prayers. We can see how God has chosen to use our prayers as one of His very means of actually affecting things. Philippians 2 tells us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I would include prayer in that work. When you read, work out your salvation, you must be thinking in terms of prayer. For it's God at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And so, if you think about that text in the realm of prayer, then we can say that God is at work in us even at the level of the will. God is leading us to pray. When you get down on your knees and you as a Christian start praying, God's leading you to pray. And so, His sovereignty and praying are actually working together, not being pitted against one another. We are to work out our salvation, and a big part of that is prayer. And we must be clear that God works through our prayers. We must pray knowing and trusting that He hears our prayers and that He answers our prayers, and that our prayers actually make a difference. In fact, you know the Bible teaches us that sometimes we have not because we ask not. Consider James 5. There we are exhorted to pray. It's a command for us to pray. There we're told that the prayer of a righteous man has great power. Okay? Again, we're not told 
that the prayer of a righteous man changes him from the inside out. That's not what we're told. We're told the the prayer of a righteous man has great power. We're told that there's power in it. We're told that God works through it. We're told in that passage that Elijah, a man with a nature just like ours, he wasn't like Superman, superhero, just just a guy, we're told that he prayed fervently that it wouldn't rain and God answered that prayer. I mean, this is amazing. In answer to Elijah's prayer for three years and six months, it didn't rain. No rain fell on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is what the Bible teaches us. If we had time, we could turn to Luke's gospel that talks about prayer more than any of the other gospels. And see, for example, in Luke chapter 11 and Luke chapter 18, that Jesus exhorts us to persistent prayer, to persevere in prayer with the point that God answers such prayer. See, the Bible clearly teaches us God is sovereign over all things, and it just as clearly teaches that in His sovereignty, He calls us to pray, and He works out His good plans in ways that are beyond our thinking, but He works out His plans in some way through our prayers. And if we don't pray, we're not only missing out on being used by Him, but we're flat out rejecting what He's taught us. And so as we study biblical prayers like we've been studying here in Ephesians, as we think about some of the beautiful confidences to prayer that the Bible wants to give us, may we lean in and pray and grow here. Church, may we reject the feeling that I don't feel close enough to God to pray. Let us reject the pride that says, I'm too busy to pray. Let us repent of saying, God's in control. He's just going to work it all out. The Bible's clear. God's called us to pray. He's called us to get alone with Him and pray. He's called us to gather as a church and pray. Join us this Wednesday. He's called us to persevere in prayer. And He's promised that He answers prayer. I love Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. Jonathan Edwards was a great old Puritan pastor, and in his younger days, he set out resolutions that he tried to live by, and his 29th, I think, is helpful as we think about putting this into practice, and I'm going to end with this. Edwards resolves, he says, resolved never to count that a prayer, nor to let that pass as a prayer or as a petition of prayer, which is so made that I cannot truly hope that God will answer it nor that is a confession which I cannot hope God will accept. You hear that? He understood God's sovereignty. He also knew God answers prayer. Church, our Creator, our Redeemer, beckons us to come to Him, to commune with Him, promising that He hears our prayers and that He works in and through our prayers. So let's pray. Father, we thank You for how You've revealed Yourself to us. Lord, I pray that You would grow us in a right, dependent frame of mind. Father, I know my own sinful heart. I know my own excuses. And I know my brothers and sisters struggle here too, and we want to grow. We want to be people of prayer. We want to pray in private, with the door closed, not looking for kudos from anybody. 
We want to pray together with the saints. We want to see you working through weak, broken, feeble people like us. And so, Lord, help us to labor at this work you've called us to. We thank you for your grace. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.